Hey, podcast listener. Do you love talking about movies, music, TV, comics, and games? Then you should be listening to The Great Pop Culture Debate, back in bigger than ever for season nine. This season, the panelists discuss the best James Bond film, the best Elton John single, the best Nickelodeon original series, the best Batman villain, and so much more. Find the show wherever you listen to podcasts or head to greatpopculturedebate.com. More than 100 topics are already available. Subscribe today. This March, I'll be launching a special run of episodes called Theory in the Flesh. I borrow the term Theory in the Flesh from and with gratitude to our feminist and QTPOC elders to draw attention to the health inequalities and disparities experienced by queer black people in the UK. Theory in the Flesh is made possible because of funding from the British Podcast Awards Fund and the Wellcome Trust, and they have created a survey to better understand listener appetite for health and research-related podcast content. I would be so grateful if you could take a few minutes to fill out the survey. Alongside showing support for Busy Being Black, you'll be able to enter yourself into a draw for tickets to this year's British Podcast Awards. Head to podcastviews.com to fill out the anonymous and data-protected survey. Busy Being Black is the podcast exploring how we live in the fullness of our queer black lives. These are conversations at our intersections and an opportunity for us to hear firsthand from others in our community how they have learned and are learning to thrive. If you like what you hear, please take a moment to rate, review, and subscribe. Doing so lets others like us hear the voices amplified here. It was my encounter with Hello Mister in 2016, the magazine about men who date men, that inspired me to throw my hat into the queer media ring. For the first time, I saw what was possible and I was hooked. I turned to the masthead, saw Fran Torado's name, and emailed him. We connected, we bonded, and he's since become one of my friends and queeros. Fran Torado is a man of many talents, and if you follow him on social media, read any of his writing, or listen to any of his numerous audio projects, you'll know that his passion and dedication to the queer community is unmatched. He is the former executive editor of of Hello Mister and the former deputy editor of Out Magazine. He's the co-creator of Food for Thought, co-host of Queerly Beloved, and has recently started his new role at Netflix, where he leads the brand's editorial and engagement strategy for LGBTQ content. Among much else, we discuss the ever-evolving landscape of LGBTQ media, the end of white twink idolatry, the moment he realized he is queer, enjoying our own company, and working in service of a greater purpose. We also discuss his tenures at Hello Mister and Out Magazine. We recorded this conversation in New York City during World Pride 2019. Thank you so much to the team at ACAST NYC for all your help. I'm Josh Rivers, and I'm Busy Being Black with Fran Torado. Fran Torado. Yes. How's it going? When I look at your face, I could just explode. Oh my God, stop. <laughs> We've been dear internet friends for so long. This feels like totally fake. Yeah, but have we been PB- PBIs? Yeah, P- P- oh yeah, oh yeah. Or PIBs. Pretend, pretend internet boyfriends. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I forgot about this. I feel like it's enti- it's entirely possible. that the, the, the For those of you who don't know, the notion of a pretend internet boyfriend is like someone that you maintain a connection with who you inev- will probably never meet. Mm. Mm. And, yeah. I, and that could that is, it is entirely possible that 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 was a thing. But now we've uh, ruined that by meeting. Yeah. So, so you know it'll never work between us. <laughs> <laughs> now that we've met, <laughs> like my ideal partner truly is someone that I never have to see. Why like, is that? I well, I mean, I mean, my therapist will tell you intimacy issues, but I also think that <laughs> liar. <you> know, <laughs> how dare you? Um, but I also think that. that uh, 
I am just someone who is great in moderation. I'm a difficult person to live with. I'm a difficult person to get along with sometimes just because of my neuroses, because of my anxiety, because of a lot of things that I deal with. Um, and I just really envy, like, you know, people who have laid the foreground for what it means to have husbands in faraway places, such as RuPaul, who keeps his husband far away in, like, Wyoming yeah. <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> Dolly Parton, whose husband we've literally never seen in the public sphere, which, like, I admire that greatly. Or, like, Ina Garten, who, you know, she literally only has to see Jeffrey, like, once every two weeks. And in the interim, she just has her gay friends over for brunch. Like, that is the life I mm. aspire to, you know what I mean? Yeah, of course. And like so much of what we hear or are indoctrinated with is this idea that we must find someone to be happy, that we must partner ourselves with someone. And in fact, it's all terribly heteronormative and blah, right? Like, so I kind of, I really admire this independence, this kind of self-awareness that, you know, puts you in a position to understand that you're actually fine on your own for the most part, if I'm not reading too deeply into that. No, it's, I just don't. Uh, believe in this arbitrary notion of like the one you know what I mean like Mm. I believe in like multiple ones I believe in multiple people that make you a better person like I personally am the combined effort of everyone I've ever known and with some people that you know have mentored me or who have really held me close um, those people make up more of me and um, but more often than not uh, my, my friends and my chosen family those relationships have and probably will mean more to me than any romantic relationship I'll ever be in. Um, so as long as I have my golden girls, I think I'll be okay <laughs> in my later life. Well, I mean, you're one of my queeros. Oh, stop yes, it. Yes. You're one of my queeros. <laughs> I'll not allow because, it. <laughs> because, um, and I think you you and Ryan Fitzgibbon both mm-hmm. know this, but when I encountered Hello Mister, that was kind of the first time I realized, oh my God, I want to be LGBTQ media. Like I want to get into this particular space to explore our storytelling. Wow. So I'm kind of really grateful to you guys, uh, to both of you, for what you created at Hello Mister. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate that because Ryan and I worked extremely hard to make that magazine. It was very much so a labor of love. Um, but to be totally honest, that was my experience too. Um, I moved to New York City um, and I wrote on my application to the NYU Summer Publishing Institute that like I wanted to change the face of queer media. Like I literally wrote that in the application. I was, I was such a dork. Um, <laughs> and I moved to New York, went to NYU, and had been there for like maybe two months or so, and walked into McNally Jackson, which is an amazing bookstore you should do while you're, you should go to while you visit here. And I saw the first copy of Hello Mister on the stands, and I flipped through it. And I was like, fuck, someone already did it. Like, someone already changed the face <laughs> of gay media. Like, I, what, what am I going to do now? And I reached out to him and, and um, was like, how can I help? And six years later, five, well, four or five years later, actually, um, I became the executive editor. So, yeah. And it, it really, it's such a small team that it's, it's a product of both of our, our loves and our brains and, mm. and everything that both of the two of us are good at. And, yeah, I'm proud of it. I was literally carrying around copies of Hello, Mister with like the I because I, when I read, I read with like um, those little highlighter tabs. Mm-hmm. So like all my books have like these kind of <laughs> millions of tabs falling out of them and like highlighters and scribbles in the margins. I live, and, I live, I live. And so I was like carrying this, you know, these issues of Hello, Mister around, like rereading these essays and like making notes. And I was like showing people and I was like, have you read Hello, Mister? Like it's the thing. And this is all of this is all before. I decided to apply for a role at Gay Times. No way! Yeah, so I was like, actually, 
and in much the same way that you encountered Hello Mister and thought, oh my God, someone's doing it. I encountered Hello Mister and was like, ooh, we can do this elsewhere. We can replicate no, this kind of amazing that work. That gives me goosebumps. Yeah. Ugh, that's like literally everything we worked for. Mm. That's like we, we worked so that people could be inspired by and create their own versions of. Because the fact of the matter is, like, Hello Mister is not for the LGBTQ community at large. Like, there's so many different communities within the acronym that are not represented by that magazine, which is in large part why I think we were both ready to move on from it. The, I'm so grateful that the magazine itself inspired a trans Hello Mister and inspired um, a kind of a more GNC Hello Mister and a black Hello Mister. Like, I, and I, you know, I shouldn't actually um, uh, denigrate the, the kind of... Uh, innovation and efforts of them because they are their own versions of things. They don't have to be the black version of Hello Mister, you know mm -hmm, what I mean? Mm -hmm, yeah. But it, it's really exciting that, you know, someone could be like, actually, there's some the very same way that I looked at Out Magazine growing up and I was like, that doesn't represent me. Mm. I'm going to make Hello Mister. Someone can look at Hello Mister and be like, that doesn't actually represent me. I'm going to go make Cake Boy. Or Yeah, well, I think what's interesting about Hello Mister, if I may, is that it's generative. Right. In that... It's it's almost like something wasn't lacking, but it was a recipe for something else. It was. Do you know what I mean? It really was. Because I think so much of our queer lives, we're creating an opposition. Right. Or we're trying to create something that doesn't exist versus building upon something that already does exist. Right. Does that make sense? Or no. am I being a bit abstract? <clears throat> no, it doesn't. It, it, I think that, you know all the parts were there when we jumped into the thing. And, and and we knew that because when we would start to talk about Hello Mister and its conceit, about um, finding a way to talk about queer people's lives without the glitz and the glam and the fashion, like something that's just real heartbreak and real emotional stories um, and storytelling outside of conversations about identity. Um, I thought that uh, there was something really powerful to that. And when we would describe it to people, they would finish our sentences. You know what I mean? Wow. Like people already, people knew what we were talking about. I, it was kind of an insider thing that everyone in the community already has an opinion about. And it's because publications like, you know, at, at the time, um, like Out or um, Huffington Post or uh, Post Queer Voices or BuzzFeed LGBT or Advocate or Attitude or whatever, those weren't really doing it. Mm. Um, and I think that the whole culture of mainstream queer media has shifted immensely in the last five years as a consequence of public demand being like, actually, one, you're only catering to cis gay men, and two, um, we're a lot more than like BMWs and like yeah. absolute vodka ads. <laughs> yeah. um, so like, wh what about that? Um, I was reading this study about, um, that basically did a survey of uh, a, a big handful of queer media uh, magazines um, over the span of four years. I believe it was like 2001 to 2005-ish. Um, and that included Out Magazine and a few others. And it basically surveyed every single image of a man in, the mag in, in each of those magazines and accounted for them and found that like 98% per of those men were white. 97% of them were had like zero body fat. 96 or 95% of them um, were youth, like youthful, like mm -hmm. 18 or something like that. Um, and I, you know, it, it was like this era of twink idolatry, of like white twink idolatry. And that kind of mentality that a lot of gay mainstream media was feeding has kind of corrupted 
what gay media's reputation is, still mm, is. Totally. You know what I mean? And I think that um, that's a big part of, like, the work that I'm doing now is trying to unravel that and and regain people's trust, honestly, mm. and to help um, represent folks that, um, like me, who previously looked at out and I was like, are you sure? You know what I mean? Yeah. So talk to me about that move to out <laughs> then. I'm interested because, obviously, when we heard that Philip was taking over, I think because we saw what he had done at them, um, I think there was a collective, this is going to be fabulous. Mm -hmm. But then it was when he started announcing deputy editors and, you know, everybody else, Mikkel and Mm. um, Raquel? Raquel, yeah, Raquel and Michael. Yeah, Yeah, um, then we was like, oh my God, they have not come to fuck around. Queer Justice League. (laughs) It's a Queer Justice League for sure. Because Um, it is, it is like, it is top tier talent, yourself included, like, these are the kind. This is like a dream team of queer talent, like that's now at the helm of of out. I will say, uh, I I might never have a work environment that I enjoyed this much. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I, our staff is the best staff I will ever work with. Uh, I and and it is one of Phil's greatest traits is his ability to seek talent and hire. Um, he hired the most brilliant people in the industry to make this thing. Um, to your initial question, uh, Phil, Phil, when Phil had announced that he was going to be the EIC of Al, in my head I was kind of like, really? Like, <laughs> I was kind of, I've been working in career media for like five years. The, the magazine at the time had really, really lost its relevance. Mm. Um, it didn't. It didn't even feel like it was playing the game anymore of queer media. Not since the Obama cover, in my opinion. And as someone who was friends with the editor in chief at the time before Phil, I kind of knew that you know a lot of folk had unplugged. And the magazine is also deeply under resourced, so it's really difficult to make things with little resources. Um, and so when Phil had kind of hinted to me that he was going to be tapping me soon for something coming up. I was like, okay. And I had kind of prepared, I had prepared my rejection. Right. <laughs> I had prepared what I thought was going to be me telling Phil that this isn't the right move for me at this time, but thank you for your offer. And Phil and I got drinks and uh, we talked for like three hours maybe. And um, he sh- shared with me his vision for what would be the new Out Magazine and a new brand and a new audience and a new staff. And I couldn't resist the uh, the task of rebranding the world's most read queer publication, mm. um, and and I'm really grateful for it. And you guys have spun it around so quickly, yeah, as very, well, very quickly. Like we made that first magazine in less than a month, and I was also the first was the first person in office alongside um, uh, Ashley Ford, who was the interim exec editor. And together we kind of conceived what the new out would look like. But it really was, until the whole team came in, it was like only ever two or three or four people mm. working on this magazine for like a month. It was so hard. <laughs> if Busy Bee and Black listeners have not seen the Zanelli Moholy cover. Oh my God, it's so good. <laughs> when it popped up, I was like, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, mark the date, the day that every other queer media outlet died. <laughs> I'm so proud of that cover. Um, yeah, Zanayli Muholi, they're an amazing um, artist uh, based in Africa, documenting queer and trans lives in Africa. And um, uh, 
Kimberly Drew was our guest editor for mm. that, and she is one of my good Judies. Um, but I, you know, I had every faith that the covers were going to be amazing, and Zanelli Muholi was one of her first picks. For oh, it's just so striking, and it's exactly the type of thing that those of us who have not felt represented before, not just. Um, visibly represented, but perhaps culturally or what we're interested in, to, to not have the interests that we have outside of sex mm. and dating, mm-hmm. exactly. and those of us who can afford them BMWs, um, <laughs> to not have the kind of multiplicity of our experiences mm. documented right. by platforms that are designed ostensibly to do that. Right, exactly. Um, to see Zanelli Moholy in that way. Because when I saw All Hail the, the Dark Linus at the autograph in London, it was it was absolutely mind-blowing really yeah i'm so jealous i've never seen her work in person oh it's brilliant and so to have it then front page or on the cover rather of um of out it's such a statement oh my gosh remarkable i think i messaged you after i saw it yeah (laughs) you did i forwarded your your message to the whole staff everyone was really flattered (laughs) (laughs) um i kind of want to take a weird turn let's do it and i want to talk about baby fran oh my god oh no franito <laughs> Talk to me. What's your earliest memory? Oh, mm, I should actually. I feel like that's a that's like a really softball question, and I should have a prepared answer for that. Um, Shade, but no, I like in a good way. In a, like a softball, like you're being kind to the subject. Right, right. Do you okay. know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, uh, I don't know if this is well. Okay. This is probably my earliest memory. I remember being in my shopping cart, in, in the front seat of a shopping cart, um, with my mom at Sam's Club, which is a very large department store over here. Uh, not department store. It's like a, a, ma- a mass. You buy everything in bulk. There. Yeah, like Costco. And there was a giant, like, huge bin filled with Snow White and the Seven Dwarves VHS tapes. And um, my – I grew up – poor uh and my mom my mom was had quit her job to support um me because they were not ready for me i was an accident um living in a one-bedroom apartment with my father and she had taken me to sam's club as like our excursion and i remember begging for the snow white VG- vhs like begging and my mom can't afford it you know like we can't afford like things that are not food you mm-hmm. know what i mean um and i remember uh at checkout she got it for me and I remember this elation, like this this kind of like, like I just never owned anything so precious. And there's something about Disney princesses and about Disney in general, but also about um, the evil femme of the Wicked Queen that like I connect with very deeply um, that I think kind of for- has formed a, a lot of, of who I am today. Mm. And that was kind of our first, the first VHS we ever owned. And my mom actually has a voicemail of me calling my dad being like, Dad, we bought Snow White. Like, it's really <laughs> cute. Um, but yeah, I think that's my earliest memory is, is owning Snow White. Um, and have you always, when, when did you realize that you were not heterosexual? I was, I didn't, I was a loser. I didn't have any friends. And so instead of making friends, I went to the library and nice. um, read every volume of Greek mythology that I could find. And I remember... Um, reading a passage about um, Apollo and Hyacinthus and how they were lovers, kind of tragic lovers, because Hyacinthus, it's also like a a terrible story about like toxic masculinity because like Apollo like throws his discus like too hard and like kills Hyacinthus. And it's like literally you could have just thrown the discus like a normal way, but you had to like be that guy. (laughs) Um, And he kills his lover and it's really tragic. But anyways, I remember reading this myth and being like, God, 
guys can love guys. Like I was like I I was I was transported like mm. astral projection, um, and in that exact moment I was kind of like, oh fuck, like that is yeah. me. Like I was kind of well, I was I, it was wild. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you've been on. Uh, well, certainly from what I've seen since we've since we first encountered each other, as it were, you've evolved even so quickly just over the last couple of years. Definitely. And so I'm, I guess I'm what I'm trying to get to, but I'm not quite sure how to get there. Mm-hmm. Is kind of was there was there kind of a definitive awakening moment for you, either to your queerness or to how you could use your queerness in service of other people or bigger ideas? I didn't so much come out as I did like have a boyfriend. So um, my first experience in queerness was latched to um, m- this person that I was with in high school for a year and a half. Um, and it was a toxic relationship. Mm. And so my the, my first memories of queerness revolved exclusively around heartbreak, turmoil, emotionality, you know, relationship issues, connection issues, all these different things. And as a consequence of this, after I got out of the relationship, I was kind of like, where are these stories in media? You know what I mean? Like, I get the straight version of this Mm. somewhere, but like, where's my queer heartbreak story? Um, And so that is in in large part what I kind of set out to do um, when I started cultivating what is the body of my work. Previous to entering media, Queerness was the only thing I could talk about. So, like, I, stu- I studied at um, the, the Kinsey Institute at Bloomington, Indiana. I chased my boyfriend there, by the way, um, and then was stuck in Bloomington, Indiana. I hated it. Um, but at least the Kinsey was there. And so I studied sex and I studied journalism. And, you know, I would be in Shakespeare class. And I would write my my term paper and be like, uh, Antonio and Sebastian were like in a gay relationship. Can't you see in this essay? I will prove. And like, or like I would be in Chaucer and I'd be like, Troilus and Cressida, they were into butt stuff. Like in this essay, like that's just like how I've always been. And then at the local newspaper, I was on the queer beat. Um, and, uh, you know, my summer job was canvassing for the human rights campaign. I'm so, I'm going to cancel me. Like whatever, but that was like back, you know, back then in high school. It was like a very progressive thing to do. Um, so it's the, it's just every, it's the only thing that I've ever cared about um, uh, and I think you know because I li- I lived and breathed uh, that kind of work I I knew that there was nothing else I could do and when people ask me you know what what's your work-life balance look like I don't really have it mm. um, because my work is the lo- the most life-giving thing that I do you know what I mean uh, and I can't figure out a way to separate that. I was actually, I was getting um, uh, lunch with my friend Chani Nicholas, who's an amazing astrologer. She's extremely talented. Um, and she was telling me that um, because <laughs> my Venus is in Gemini, that um, everything that I have kind of, everything that uh, you know I do in my realm of connections and in relationships also has to do with locution and being the arbiter of things and um, making sure that I'm talking on public platforms and getting people activated. So I've essentially fallen in love with my career. Like my Venus and the thing that owns like all of my love, my right. love space is like, I, I fall in love with my, 
work, which makes me sound insane, but I'm just being <laughs> honest. <laughs> Yeah. No, because I think that the, the work-life balance is a result of the kind of industrial nine-to-five. Right. Right? I don't think that it's a result. I don't think it's something that those of us who are pursuing our passions are necessarily looking for. Right? Because exactly. it's not It's not just about what you... It's about finding that groove, right? Falling into this flow, into this love with the stories that you're telling or what, the things that you're uncovering or just the thing that drives you for those of, for those who are listening who are not queer storytellers, <laughs> as it were. So I, I like that. I like that we might just become so consumed in something that we love yeah. and also get paid for it. But don't worry me. My therapists are working on it. So, <laughs> you know, we'll figure out a little bit of separation soon. Just not right now because it's Pride Month. <laughs> what has been, this question just popped into my head. Mm-hmm. You don't have to answer it. What has been the most transformative thing that's happened to you over the last 12 months? 12 months? Um, honestly, it's been Phil. Um, I think Phil, Phil tapping me. Right. Yeah, Phil, Philip Cardi tapping me for this role at Out was so out of left field. Um, I, had, I was freelancing at the time mm. and was kind of like, I will never work for a company again. That's kind of what m- my thought was. Um, and as I, I said, I just didn't think that this was going to be the job for me. And this job has kind of, um, really, uh, projected my career in an entirely different direction than I thought it would go mm-hmm. in a very positive way because I'm able to make actual real change by getting the things that our staff is curating and putting them in front of a huge audience. Um, definitely that I would say. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. It's queer related. I'm sorry. No, I every- wish I could tell you a love story. No, no, I, you know, I'm so pro queer everything. <laughs> so where you were at in Indiana is where I'm at now. Mm. And that if it's not explicitly queer, I want nothing to do with it. Mm, same, 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 same. I'm bored. <laughs> um, okay. So one of the things that I'm interested in at the moment is how we build a queer cultural canon. Okay. And obviously one exists, mm-hmm. I'm sure. Right. Because there are is a body of work that contributes to our queer consciousness, Mm -hmm. as it were. But I'm kind of very curious about the particular intersection of queerness and race Mm. and what you would recommend as kind of foundational texts for people to explore. That's a really great question. Um, I am our unofficial books editor here at Out. And what's really interesting about this particular cultural moment is like authors get to create bodies of work, not just in text, but on social media. And we are so lucky right now to have some of the brightest minds in our generation also be tweeting, which I know sounds super trite, but like like when I read tweets from Natalie Diaz or Jenna Wortham or Morgan Parker, um, who's not queer, but uh, is an amazing human, like I feel so lucky to have that mm. free content. You know mm. what I mean? To have that free, life-giving brain stuff. That's how I feel about Hari Ziad. Right. From um, Black Youth Project. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, like, work like theirs or work like um, uh, uh, Tommy Pico, you know what I mean? Like, I just feel so lucky to kind of be not only reading their texts, but to be reading their brains and their kind of stream of consciousness uh, online. Um, I think that the the canon as it as it were as you would say as it were um <laughs> uh will be more than just texts sure as we go on like we will be able to read um 
work, like, you know, we'll be able to read blogs, we'll be able to consume videos, we'll be able to, like, um, consume things that are not just text that, you know, inform what our identities co grow to be. I personally um, have my body of work to thank because of podcasts. You know mm, what I mean? Mm. Um, because of cultural objects like Another Round or On Being or, you know, things like that, that just kind of like form what I hope will be some version of a canon. Mm. Um, podcast and, you know, still processing has shaped the way I think about things over and over again. This is the New York Times podcast, yeah, still processing. Yeah, with, with Jenna Wortham yeah. and Wesley Morris. And, yeah, I think that I think about those when I think about canon, but I think about specific books. Yeah, if, um, if you were to, and not just books, but if you were to think about specific things, specific things, right? Because what we explore on Busy mm -hmm. is you know living in our fullness, mm -hmm. and so in order in order to do that, what I found very helpful are places like On Being, which which has allowed me to kind of which has given me a template for something like Busy Being Black, right? To have these kind of searching, numinous conversations about what it means to, to be who we are. But also the kind of more specific texts mm -hmm. and moments, i.e. looking for Langston mm. um, by Isaac Julian, yeah. or I've just read One Dimensional Queer, mm -hmm. and I'm reading Towards a Gay Communism by Mario Miele. Mm -hmm. and, and these are having such a transformative and have had such a transformative um, effect on how I'm thinking about myself in the world, but also how to have better conversations with myself and with others and, and to and to make connections between things I might not have previously seen. First and foremost, Alexander Chi's um, How to Write an Autobiographical Novel is one of my favorite things I've read in a while. And I'm a little bit biased because Alex is a good friend of mine um, and also a mentor of mine. But um, he created something that can speak to so many different kinds of experiences in an unpresumptuous way. Um, so many writers that create work like his is so self-important. And I think that, you know, Alex's work is very much so his own. And if you mention Alexander Chi's name in any literary space, any book reading, any like conference, any anything, everyone lights up. Mm. Not because um, his text is not just because his text is genius, but because he has fostered relationships with every single one of them. And that to me, his ability to connection and to create connections and to mentor and to provide free help um, and consultation to his queer and um, and brown community is un it's unprecedented. I have no idea how he does all of it. Um, so he's the first person that comes to mind. Um, I think Tommy Pico's Nature Poem, and also IRL is what like, got me started, but Nature Poem is a phenomenal text and, and um, changed the way that I think about what it means to create content. Mm. Um, Tommy uh, is on my podcast, uh, Food for Thought, and I, you know, uh, we always think very, very differently about how the content takes its form because Tommy's very wild. He likes to like break form and he likes to say like, fuck it up, fuck the audience, I don't care. <laughs> um, and that, I think that the way that he um, really innovates form is something that I adore. Um, I think uh, Ocean Vuong's On Earth Were Briefly Gorgeous, which, is it even out yet? <laughs> no, but I've got Ocean Vuong here oh because I discovered Ocean through you. Yes, their, yeah. <laughs> their work is, so they've been on the come up, oh. but their work, this next book is going to, everyone's going to freak out. It's so good. Um, and if you haven't read Ocean Vuong's um, Night Sky with Exit Wounds. It's so good. Uh, it is one of the most transcendent 
uh, yeah, works I've ever, yeah, it's beautiful. It's exquisite. And um, they're an extremely bright mind that we do not deserve. Tourmaline's book, um, formerly known as Raina Gossett, um, she created uh, Trapdoor, uh, which is an amazing kind of beautiful, like precious treasure book um, archiving um, the trans experience in relation and its relationship to art. Uh, that to me is just a book that it's it's a really big, heavy book, but it's like one that like everyone needs. Um, I think that uh, uh, she is just one of the the brightest minds of our generation, and we are so lucky to have her at this particular moment. Um, I believe Denez Smith is mm. going to be someone that we're going to look back and and wonder how um, we deserved them. Um, uh, uh, Angel Nafis um, and Shira Elrickman, who have books coming out very soon, are favorites of mine. I think that at this particular moment, there are just so many... I'm like recommending books left and right, mm-hmm. and I'm excited to talk about them. And you're always reading something new. I am, and I, I feel like... You know, I, 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 I don't have as much time to read as I used to, which is a super bummer. But um, I think that uh, I, if I learn something new from a book, that's all. That's like to me is all I need. Um, and yeah, I think that we're we're at a little bit of a queer literary renaissance because all of us, and this is unfortunate, but like all of a sudden like queerness and transness is like marketable and will sell books. And that is an unfortunate fact that like only now people are coming around to it, but it's also exciting that, you know, Ocean's book is going to get a lot of money. Already got a lot of money. Mm. You know what I mean? Um, That um, artists like that and writers like that, um, like Tourmaline, are getting their paychecks, you know? And that is an exciting place to be. Yeah. (laughs) Because we deserve to get paychecks. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) We deserve to be able to secure the bag. Yes. That is like just, I especially during Pride season, that is just like one of the, that is the number one thing I'm advocating for. I'm just like, get queers money. Yeah, because you do these kind of wonderful Twitter threads (laughs) about the corporatization of Pride. And I think we all have our bugbears about the corporatization (laughs) of Pride. Um, So talk to me about these these threads for for listeners who may not have encountered them. Sure. so I got very angry on the internet about how brands and corporations conceive pride campaigns. It wasn't necessarily the fact that they're doing it um, because, you know, of my other mind, I'm like, there's no ethical consumption under capitalism and brands are never going to stop doing this. Like there's no world we're going to live in where brands are not going to stop being shitty. So if they're going to be shitty and capitalize on our oppression, our our marginalization on our identities, they might as well do a good fucking job and get people paid. Um, And so I was like, if you have to create Mm. a pride campaign was my message in the beginning of the thread. Here are a list of things that you can do and do not do. Mm. Um, And, you know, that is everything from like, don't just slap a rainbow unlimited edition product and call it a day. Don't develop just a t-shirt and then only donate 10% of the proceeds. Like make sure you have a nonprofit partner, make sure that it's conceived by not just one, but multiple queer people and that you're hiring and paying those queer people well to conceive your campaigns. Make sure the casting is intersectional. Um, Make sure that um, you are thinking about the storytelling value. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Make sure that you invest in it. It should have good production value. Like, I don't want to see just, like, a white backdrop and, like, some, you know, shitty... I don't know. There's just so many... There's so many things about pride campaigns that are all they're all replicating the same idea and as someone who used to work in advertising i know that the number one thing about conceiving campaigns for brands is that you want to make it ownable 
and you want to make it something that's different from everything else out there when it comes to the ad and how the brand's messaging comes across. And so I'm all like, hold up. What is it about queer people that when you're in this room brainstorming for whatever ad campaign you're coming out with, it's totally okay to replicate what everyone else is doing? Mm. That's wild yeah. to me. That's just so wild. Um, and what's also wild is that the response to this thread, which has gone a, a teeny bit viral, like ha has brought a lot of queers coming up in my mentions saying, visibility, but that matters. And like corporations are doing great. And like people defending corporations, corporations. <laughs> like that's wild, that's so crazy. People are defending yeah. Taylor Swift. She's a corporation, you know? Um, and so uh, I'm just like, uh, we like capitalism has us brainwashed where you were defending this Ikea bag. Oh, like, I, yeah, that was wild to me that someone was like, but Ikea, and I was like... It's like, but 100% of the proceeds go to the HRC. I was like, one, the HRC sucks. Yeah. Two... <laughs> Shit, I'm gonna get canceled. <laughs> Two, the bag is like two dollars. Yeah. Like we, like what? Like that is not a substantive contribution to the queer community. Like the the big, giant corporations like that should be counting on losing money for pride. Right. They should not be. They should think about it as added brand value because they have gained trust with mm. a certain you know amount of their audience, which is another version of capitalism. But like that's just like they should not be trying to like make money off of it. And part of that brainwashing, I think, is that we have been brainwashed not to ask for what we deserve, mm -hmm. right? Because not only do people think they cannot even offer up payment for people's time in the first place, but I find it's there's there's sometimes what we're what we're experiencing at the moment is we're waking up to the fact that you're allowed to demand money for your time. Yes, honey. <laughs> Securing the bag yes. has also become very uh, David Gear. <laughs> My favorite thing also that has happened to me three different times this Pride is a brand reaches out and then I say, oh, great, um, my rate is X. And they say, oh, either we don't have budget or we can't meet that because of Y. And then they offer me an insulting me. Uh, and they offer me no money or an insulting amount of money. And then they say, but we hope you'll agree to do it because it's a good cause. And I was like, hold up. What is the cause? Like, queer people at large? Like, creating a pride campaign is a good cause like yeah. no thank you like some of these <laughs> some of these brands don't even have a nonprofit partner and i was like so you a corporation are telling me a queer person that you are going to underpay a queer person for queer people? Yeah. No, you should be paying people healthy rates at their full rates and consider that part of the advocacy in addition to paying um, the Trans Law Center and Kellen Lord and all these, you know, amazing organizations that are really easy to work with. Um, and you, you know, write it off on your taxes. Like, I don't give a fuck. Just like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's so frustrating. Um, <clears throat> and I think that another thing is that uh, some critique from the gay community specifically is like, visibility, it matters. Like, it, that rainbow is really going to mean something to someone in the Midwest. Um, who will see it and feel protected. And I agree with that. Um, a rainbow is a much more life-saving thing there than it is here in New York City, and that is the privilege that I hold. However, inclusion is no longer the exception. It is the standard. Mm. And if we do not hold brands accountable to higher and higher standards, we're going to get the same shitty rainbow products 30 years to come. 30 years ago, a rainbow would be a radical idea. It is no that is no longer the case. Um, and, and I feel like the rainbow flag is used to like disguise. Let's think about who's not 
accounted for within the rainbow, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. The queer people of color, the trans people of color, uh-huh, uh-huh. right here in New York City, or indeed in London and in smaller fuck towns. Your rainbows. Yeah, yeah. I, these are my ex. I have refrained from talking about these on a pu- public platform, but these are my exclusive thoughts on the rainbow, and I just think that the rainbow, as a, I love people that love it. But for me, the rainbow will never encapsulate or represent every identity of the queer community. So we need to stop placing so much weight Mm. on it. Um, It will never represent everyone. And not just that, but the the rainbow, where it started as a symbol of protest, flags are are tools of militarism and colonialism. Like, we Mm. don't need that symbol to feel together as a community, there are other ways to do that. Yeah, and it's not a replacement for you not actually doing the fucking work. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Because inclusive like, is action is, is an action. Like when they act, like the brown and the black stripe and the rainbow are amazing. But like I, as a brown person, I'm like I don't feel anything from that brown stripe. Mm. You know what I mean? Like I would love to see that brown stripe actually instead of like you investing in developing that design or you investing in like um, creating a new, you know raising that flag at whatever brand or company or establishment that you work at with a brown and black stripe, I was like, why don't you just donate money? Like that would be so much more impactful. Why don't you develop an initiative? Why don't you create an ERG so that your employees can like be, you know, have tools to like learn how to talk about queer and trans folks. Um, You know, there are so many different ways to to use your resources that don't have to revolve around a flag. Yeah. Um, And I think that's kind of my exclusive thoughts on that. But again, I respect everyone that loves flags. (laughs) And I know that flags are amazing things that uh, mean a lot to people. It's just for me personally, I wish we would focus on something else. Yeah, the the kind of substantive inroads. Yeah. It's it's a bugbear, also, I think. It's kind of ugly. But that's the What the the rainbow flag or with the black and brown stripes. The ra- no, no, just the rainbow flag in okay. general. <laughs> the rainbow flag in general. I was like, wait. No. I just like <laughs> Redacted. <you know>. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, sorry. <laughs> okay. Um so to close, I ask all of my guests the same question. What do you hope for? I think if you would ask me this question five years ago or 10, I would have told you that representation is what I hope for. That I hope for kids like me to grow up and have reflections of themselves in, main, in the mainstream, in our cultural objects. Um, and I still wish for that. But now, I think the thing that I hope for most is a nuancing of the conversations that we're already having. And that we as a community, uh, as queer communities, I should say, because we comprise of cultures and subcultures and sub-subcultures, as well as different identities and communities. um, I hope that we all can talk to each other um, and figure out what the next steps are and learn how to be a part of the same thing as opposed to feeling divided all the time for um, for obvious reasons and for reasons that um, are, you know, well justified. Um, I think that I want to wake gay men up because they hold the most power and the matrices of power of this acronym. Uh, and I think that there's a large conglomerate of them that are not thinking about what kind of actual impact they could have if they literally said one thing once. They literally just stood up for something once or showed up once. Um, I think a lot about that. Uh, and so a lot of the work that I create now is is not so much in the hopes that, you know, 
gay men uh, will feel themselves reflected and more so that gay men will start thinking about things more complexly. Mm. Um, that gay men will actually have trans friends and have non-binary friends because a lot of gay men don't. Um, and that they can, you know, work to have a people so that all of us can learn how to speak across our differences and work together across our differences. And it, as a consequence of that, consume content across our differences because we are in a very unique cultural moment right now in 2019 where, <clears throat> for the first time in my memory, white people are reading about race. And for the first sure. time in my memory, straight people are reading about gay people and cis people are reading about trans folks. RuPaul has an Emmy and The Favorite got a lot of Oscars and like all these, you know, all these like queer cultural objects, quote unquote queer. Like I know that there's a debatability about the queerness of like those specific cultural objects, but you know what I mean? That like queerness is mainstreaming. Like ballroom is at the forefront of our culture right now. That's wild. Like ballroom was like the bottom of the bottom of culture 30 years ago. Mm. Was it third? No, it's like 50 years ago. More. Uh, whatever. Mm. That's inaccurate. Whatever. Um, but but my, we get it. But my point is like uh, the things that I'm making right now at Out Magazine with our staff is in the hopes that the community that we're talking to at large is willing to consume content across their differences and that we can get the gay man that will read the story about pumping, about trans women and pumping and, and hip injections. That, you know, the drag queen that um, the drag queen will want to read the story about pronouns and that um, the lesbian will want to read the story about the drag queen. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? I think that our hope is that in this very specific moment where we're all willing to consume content across our differences that, um, yeah, that's I guess straight and cis people will, too. But also just that we'll all be better because we have created a multiplicity of perspective and a diversification of the ways we see the world. Damn it, I have another question. <laughs> yeah, here for it, here for it. Because it makes me all the questions. Because <laughs> I try to end on that. That was such a beautiful way to end. We can, we can like, yeah. yeah, but what just came into my head is this conversation with, about echo chambers. Mm. Because the silos are understandable. I think you said that, right? Mm. It's, it's justifiable that each of us within the queer communities might or still might feel as if we need to protect ourselves in these silos in which we can kind of explore things that are specific to our experiences, to our intersections. Mm -hmm. Because, and also because they've literally been harmed by yes. inside the community. Precisely. Like learning that queer people can hurt other queer people is like a thing that not everyone, that a lot of privileged people, folk in the community haven't realized yet. Mm. That gay men hurt trans women all the time. Mm. That That gay men hurt queer women all the time um you know i think it's just wild anyway sorry continue. well no that's a it's a brilliant point right mm -hmm. and then so there's a there's a there's a critique that's lobbied at echo chambers mm -hmm. right you're all kind of in the same bubble you're all hearing everyone's ideas and it's really bothered me lately this idea this critique of echo chambers because i think that it doesn't acknowledge the the transmissions mm -hmm. that happen within that echo chamber mm -hmm. so if you think about you, me, Food for Thought, Out Magazine, you know, these kind of queer people of color specific spaces. Mm -hmm. This kind of echo chamber critique suggests that there are no new ideas circulating within that echo chamber. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that in order for us to progress, we have to open up this echo chamber to people that we know would do us harm. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I don't know why that popped into my head, but I think it's this kind of, it's this, how do we, 
how do we do that as queer people? How do we open up our silos? How do we open up and let other people into that experience? For me, I mean, I love that point because the only way we as communities are going to get work done is when we talk amongst ourselves Mm. Uh, and when we're willing to set aside hurt or set aside harm uh, or or set aside just like, you know, resentment uh, to just talk, to talk. Um, and I am really grateful for Twitter as a space right now, as much of a dumpster fire as it can be as well, that, you know, that is my professional water cooler. You know, you like buy the water cooler and you're like chatting and talking to colleagues that I literally have never met and sharing new ideas. Um, colleagues that are across my difference that don't have anything to do with my identity. Um, that to me is the only way I will continue to learn, um, that and reading and working in person with folk. Um. And I, yeah, I, I kind of tend, unless that the echo chamber itself is fostering, you know, fear-based mentalities or fostering um, dangerous groupthink mentalities, that there's a lot to be done positively when we all talk amongst ourselves. Mm-hmm. And to, to answer your question about, you know, ha- the notion of how, um, I think that as queer community, as queer communities, that we are all imperfect. We all have shortcomings and not just shortcomings, but we all have different kinds of power and different kinds of resources and different things that we're good at. And those imperfections or those things that we're lacking and not lacking breeds interdependency within the community. I need you, Josh, because you do something better than I do and vice versa. Mm. And that interdependency breeds community breeds a need for each other um, in a way that will help repair the damages that we've created inside the communities itself. Um, a damage that, you know, in large part might never be fully repaired um, because, you know, white queer folk can hurt brown queer folk and vice versa, as we've talked earlier um, and across other identities. Um, but uh, until we until we start realizing that we can still help each other um that um we're ever going to get anything done friend thank you so much for being here of it's course honor to share this space with you it's my pleasure to share this space with you and um and your shorts yes oh yeah short right. shorts you can probably see my balls <laughs> <laughs> they are out mama friend Torado is the former executive editor of hello mister and the former deputy editor of out magazine he's the co-creator of food for thought co-host of clearly beloved and has recently started his new role at netflix where he leads the brand's editorial and engagement strategy for lgbtq content there are links as ever in the show notes Busy Being Black is the podcast exploring how we live in the fullness of our queer black lives. Thank you to our partners, UK Black Pride and Blackout UK, and to you, the listeners. Remember this, your support doesn't cost any money. Retweets, shares, ratings, and reviews all help, so please keep the support coming. Finally, thank you to Anthony Giles, a queer black Grammy-nominated producer based in New York City for these bomb-ass Busy Being Black beats. Ashe. Ashe.